Hello, everyone. Jenna Valente here, host of the Sea Change podcast, um, but coming to you guys today with my good friend, Brian Urisitz, who you all are probably familiar with. Hello, Brian. How's it going, Jenna? Good to talk to you again. I know we haven't chatted in a while. Um, I'm, I'm excited. We have a, a fun episode here coming up. Yeah, I know. I think the last time we did a crossover episode was back in 2019 at the EarthX conference. We were doing some uh, some live reporting there with people that we, we met through the event and, and found interesting. So um, I'm definitely excited to be here doing a special holiday crossover episode. And when I was preparing for this, I actually realized that our show names have, they're like made to be a crossover episode because when you yeah. bring both of us together, it's shaped by the Sea Change podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I was even thinking Hope by the Sea. Yeah. You know? there's, there's I was a lot just of like, that's good. <laughs> we, um, we can go with yours. Yeah, I mean, they both they both work. It, it can be like a listener, choose your own adventure situation. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, but, you know, we're, we're here in the thick of holiday season, meaning that a lot of people are going to be participating in, you know, virtual or distanced or hopefully small celebrations. Um, and uh, if anyone's family is like mine, and I'm sure as we'll hear, like yours to Brian, um, <laughs> any, you know, anytime you get together, there's a lot of love there, but there's also a lot of strong and differing opinions about a oh, whole whole wide range of things um and then you know just add in a couple of drinks into the mix and you never know what kind of messy topic or conversation is going to come up um or how you're going to navigate it so that's essentially the premise of the show today is we're here to try to share some thoughts on uh, navigating difficult conversations yeah exactly and it's really like i, I like to say that your your family and friends you don't have to all share the same political you know, beliefs. But um, what I find is that everyone really does want the best for the country and for collective us collectively as United States citizens moving forward. And, and the, the Christmas time dinner table is like the perfect place to really to listen to this kind to these conversations, honestly, um, because and this is something that I um I just watched that Netflix documentary about how we're spending too much time on social media, right? And mm-hmm. and I think it's a perfect time to really like hear what other people have to say about topics happening around the U.S. and, and well, as we're going to talk about with our oceans, but um, because you know on social media and every day on the news that that you read on your on your screens, um, it's content that for the most part you know, is related to what you think, or, you know, a lot of times is, um, really, you know, uh, it's kind of tailored towards you, right? And this is like the one time to get that raw input from, uh, you know, from your grandparents, from your parents, from your siblings, um, just to really sit, sit down all together and have all these different ideas in one place. And uh, I know sometimes, sometimes the conversations get can get heated. But um, <laughs> I think I think it's a, it, it's a really, I, I always have a great time, 
you know, talking about this stuff with my family. And I, I think it's nothing but love. But um, yeah, we, we definitely you and I have some some tips, I'd say, uh, from from navigating these conversations with our own families. Right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, um, you know, something to note is that I, I think at least coming into this conversation, I'm, I'm hoping to share some ways that we can uh, navigate difficult conversations in an emotionally intelligent way. Um, and yeah. I guess when I like when I say that, because, you know, emotional intelligence is not something that I feel like I talk about often. So um, I feel like it's always best to err on the side of clarity. But I think the reason why I'm highlighting that is is because practicing emotional intelligence is really helpful in understanding um you understanding and using and managing our own emotions in positive ways um, that can relieve stress and help us communicate effectively and empathize with others and um, you know overcome challenges and, and diffuse conflict. So that's sort of the angle that I'm coming at this from is um, by offering some things that I, as a most certainly not perfect human being. Um, try to practice with varying degrees of success and failure <laughs> um, uh, to, you know, just trying to be mindful and measured of how I behave in conversations with people with differing worldviews than me. Um, because I think you're right, Brian, that, you know, overall having these conversations with people that hold differing perspectives presents an opportunity to explore and understand the foundations of, of, you know, my own worldviews and learn lessons and grow. So there's a lot that can come from discussing our differences, uh, just as long as it's done in a mindful and emotionally intelligent way. Yeah. Just understanding that everyone, everyone else at the tables has their own uh, life experiences that they bring to the table and that, that shape their, the way that they think. And yeah, a hundred percent, but yeah, Telling that, telling that to my dad would, uh, would be pretty interesting because my family, uh, <laughs> we were talking about this before, we're very, you know, very, uh, my grandparents are off the boat Italian. Um, my whole family is basically Italian. Uh, they all came from, or live in Queens, New York. And um, to, really to win conversations at the dinner table, it's just whoever's talking the loudest gets heard. And <laughs> it, that's, usually, that's usually my father. Um, he's, he's pretty good at that, but, uh, and you, you were saying that you've had similar, uh, experiences, but that, that's, it, it's, that's not necessarily the best tactic, right? <laughs> Getting people to, yeah. to understand what you're trying to say. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to fall into though. And, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like we come from very similar, uh, family structures and that I also am the product of a very large Italian family. Um, uh, and it's, it's very much the same over holidays or really any situation where you get all of us together is, um, kind of the loudest and most gregarious of the bunch tends to rise to the top and is heard most often. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it depends on the level of passion that someone has on a particular topic for how loud they speak and who gets heard. Cause I feel like we all get hurt in our own time, um, but you're right. I, I think that um, that's not necessarily the, the most appropriate way to navigate yeah. difficult conversations, but I also think that it relates directly to why sometimes those people in my life are the ones that I have the hardest time 
having these conversations with um, because I, I use an entirely different (laughs) way of speaking (laughs) when it comes to my family than I do with people uh, at work, which I think is probably why I'm still employed because I don't just shout over everybody. (laughs) Yeah. So, so then I'm curious, Jenna, what, what is one of your strategies to having these emotionally intelligent conversations? Yes. So I try to choose things that I am actively working on. Um, And my first one is active listening or listening to understand. So trying to approach the conversation as a dialogue and not an argument. I really need to remind myself of that, especially when we're talking about politics um, and climate or things that I care so much about that I take them personally. Um, So really trying to actively listen. So some things that I've been trying to put into practice are trying to be fully present in the moment and pay attention to the person that I'm, I'm talking to or speaking with without interrupting them. Um, Cause it's so easy just to like want to jump in and be like, no, like I don't agree with that or this, this triggered me in some way. And so I'm, I'm trying to be better about like just letting somebody finish their thought um, as well as, you know, noticing their body language and their tone of voice and making eye contact and being intentional about um, just really trying to understand their worldview and where they're coming from as opposed to listening to react. Um, And then something that I learned in grad school actually, and I've been trying to do this more um, I recently interviewed one of my grad school professors for my, my, the Sea Change podcast, and he reminded me of this because he's, he's very into leadership for sustainability and how everybody can lead from where they are. And so he talks a lot about how you can navigate these hard conversations. And um, he's big into saying yes and. So um, when you're talking to somebody that is sharing something that maybe you don't agree with, instead of saying the word, but like saying yes and, and then going with it. So being a little bit more agreeable rather than combative can really go a long way. And I, I've really put this one into practice and it it's helpful. Um, I like that. I think that yes. And (laughs) that could definitely work at the dinner table table. Cause that, just like you said, it keeps that dialogue going and it, it lets people know that you're listening. It's like, I mean, I, I personally think just, you know, keeping eye contact with folks, like especially today when you have your phone in your pocket, like I I know I've lost someone or someone's not listening as soon as they like start checking their phone or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think like maintaining that dialogue and and that's a, that's a really interesting point, you know, making, making it not an argument, making it a dialogue. And I think the one thing I, I think really relates here that I, I kind of wanted to add is I really try and find common ground with people when we're talking about Things like the the environment, things that are happening in the environmental field, right? Um, whether it's issues like climate change, overfishing, pollution, um, you can generally find a way to to relate that to you, the place that you're in, right? The lo- to the mm-hmm. local level, and in a way that um, you're talking about events or issues that that your family can understand. So, for example, when I talk about climate change with my family, I usually bring it up in the context of uh, they, my 
my family's house was, you know, basically f- completely flooded out during Hurricane Sandy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ba- uh, however many years ago it was now. And so they, the whole community went through that climate disaster that, that that was a, it was like a catastrophic event for everyone. And that's, that's the kind of thing that sticks with people, no matter what, what end of the political realm you're on and just, br- just bring it into, um, the, like the context that they can understand and that they can relate to. I, I find a lot of success with that too. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that I think transitions really well into, um, the, the second thing that I've been practicing a lot is, um, exactly that is, is trying to connect the issues that I care about to the issues that whoever I'm talking to cares about and their experiences and their interests and, you know, where they live and, and, um, excuse me, clearing my throat. (laughs) I don't have COVID. I feel like I have to, I have to clarify that whenever I um, cough or sneeze in public. Um, but you know, I think it's a lot of that comes from taking the time to get to know somebody and asking them, questions. So really working to understand where somebody's coming from in their life story and why their worldview is the the way it is and then you can relate these issues to the things that they care about. Um like exactly what you were saying uh with how you connect the Hurricane Sandy to your family. It's a similar thing like when I'm talking to people in Maine and the lobstering community is so important to the economy of the state and a lot of the livelihoods of people that are friends and family and um, their species migration, they're moving north as the water's warm, the lobster are moving. And so I think that's like a really big one to connect to people at least here. So um, and I know we can have our own entire episodes about, you know, Hurricane Sandy and then also <laughs> lobster. Yeah. There are, I know on this network, we've had uh, shows about lobster and their migration. And uh, those are great episodes to go check out. But, you know, finding that issue that that shows that climate change is here, you know, wherever yeah. we are, it's happening right here, right now, no matter where you're sitting, it's not a far away issue anymore. Yeah, that's very true. And even even touching on that point, um, one of the events that anyone at that dinner table can understand, and it's a topic that I can promise you will come up, is the coronavirus, this pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And that I I think it's an it's an interesting opportunity to talk about environmental issues, especially when I think of uh, the pandemic and you know just just where we've been. I find it interesting that and. And this, this I truly believe is a topic that folks who are conservative, folks who are progressive, um, both can agree on. This this breaks down barriers. Is that um, we need to address this why this happened, and one of the the, the core reasons that this happened um, was uh, our food production and uh, the the trade of wildlife. That's mm-hmm. a big thing that um, that I personally talk about a lot with my family when I talk about coronavirus is how are we going to come out of this better than we came in? Um, are we going to solve the problems that, that made this happen? Like I remember watching a Netflix documentary um, probably like a year or two ago where uh, researchers in China were, were focusing on bats because that's what they were studying SARS, I believe it was. And they were predicting like that would be where the, 
a pandemic would happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or or the next spread of this like an infectious disease. And so I think that I think that's an interesting way to bring up um, the need to conserve wildlife and the need to change our food systems, you know, globally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but uh, I think I think you know everyone can relate to it because obviously we're still going through this, but yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I think that it's a great opportunity too to, to highlight the need for habitat protection and demonstrating what will continue to happen as climate changes and getting back to like what I was talking about with the lobster with species migration. So, you know, as you see uh, certain types of wildlife that might um, be more prone to having viruses in them that can jump to humans or affect humans, uh, if they're losing the habitat that they live in, there's not that line is blurred between society and the the quote unquote wilderness. Um, yeah. So you're going to see a lot more interaction between humans and wildlife, and then you also would have species moving. Um, so where they once were historically, they some of them are going to have to shift to find food and water and shelter and um, thrive in the way that they need, you know, with all the resources that they need to survive, just like humans do. Um, So I think that you're going to start to see a lot more overlap of wildlife and humans. And when that happens, unless we're actively protecting uh, species of wildlife and their habitat, um, I don't see how more pandemics aren't going to come down the line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's um, even in terms of like just communications, uh, people... I mean, we've seen it during this pandemic is that people really do care about other people first, right? Like what I remember uh, whenever we talk about fundraising for environmental issues, um, I think it's something like 3% of all fundraising or or charitable giving goes towards the environment or environmental issues. And I think something like this, that that really does cross uh, both of those, it it relates environmental issues to um, human health, right? Uh, Health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an opportunity to really, really, sh- I don't know, shine a light on this kind of stuff a little bit more. It, and yeah, I, I think I think it's going to be an interesting topic, especially with my family uh, at the dinner table. But um, yeah, yeah, and you know, I th- I think when I was pondering some some fun facts or interesting facts to bring up as conversation starters at the table, I was sort of thinking about it in under the context or in the context of, um, you know, maybe I'm in a difficult conversation. Like what's something, what's a good point for me to bring up if I'm in a conversation with someone that isn't um, super on board with climate change and understanding the need for climate action. And um, yeah, kind of hostile towards you. Or yeah. Like- you know, and like my, my go-to one, and I love to share this. And I feel like this, this is kind of a commonly known one. So maybe it's like a softball, um, but, <laughs> uh, but it's just, it's astounding that, um, you know, people, I, I don't know. I just feel like people should care about the ocean, um, be, for so many reasons, Amen. but, but mainly if you don't care about anything else other than being alive and breathing, you should care about the ocean because marine plants like phytoplankton and allergies produce 70% yeah. of the oxygen that we breathe. Um, and I know that, that that percentage kind of fluctuates and um, there are reasons for that depending on you know what part of the ocean you're in where the 
phytoplankton are and all of that. But, you know, so if all else fails in a conversation with somebody that is like a, a climate denier, not really um, super on board with, with protecting the planet or supporting policies or people in Congress that, yeah. um, you know, are running on climate change, it's really as simple as, you know, if, if you like breathing – then you care about the health of the ocean. If you like yeah. being alive on planet Earth, then you care about the health of the ocean. Um, and, you know, we'll also give a shout out to rainforests because they produce the, <laughs> the rest of it. We love them too. Um, so we, it's not all just ocean-based. You can go terrestrial with your love for conservation and climate. Yeah, we'll um, share the love. Yeah, we'll share the love because it's all important. But the, the, ox, you know, the oxygen we breathe, air we breathe, um, the ocean carries the heavy, the heavy lifting on that for sure. That, that is a good softball one. I, mm-hmm. I definitely agree. That's, that's a really good one. I, that's one of my favorites to really put out to anyone who like it ha- has no care or interest in marine science. Yeah. Like that's, that's the statistic that you're like, wow. Okay. You know that anyone can understand that. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's shocking. I didn't know that for a long time until I got into this line of work. I just thought, yeah. you know, you're, you're raised and you think it's all, it's all trees. Plankton. That's where it's at. <laughs> but, um, I was, I was also going to say even, um, this, this is one too, that has recently become more popular is people are spending more time outdoors this year. Like people really during the pandemic and this hit everyone is that when outdoor spaces were shutting down, people were like, where, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, some of the hiking trails definitely got, and this, I think it's a, it's a good and bad thing. I mean, obviously people need to be new, new, new people and audiences who are getting into hiking and, and the outdoors definitely need to like be educated about the, the proper etiquette, right? Um, leaving the race, all this stuff. But um, I think that's, that's something that anyone can relate to right now is that they've been spending more time just walking around. Like what else am I supposed to do? Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and you can kind of highlight like there are actually scientific, like scientifically proven benefits for spending time in the woods in terms of people's mental health and like physical health and relaxation. Um, Oh yeah. There's it's it trees produce, I'm going to totally like mess this up, but it's like (laughs) trees produce some sort of like, hormone or pheromone or something like that, that has this actual <laughs> effect on people. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this on another show of mine um, where it's called, it's called forest bathing. Like it's a real thing. Oh, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say there's a similar, it's a, there's a similar thing with the ocean too, that we crave to be near water. Yeah. Um, it's in, internally, it's something that drives us. Um, and yeah, I, wait, what were you going to say about forest bathing? I'm, forest I'm, bathing. I think I, I was like trying to think of the word because it originated in Japan. Ja, it's like a Japanese word. Um, it's, I think it's called Shinrin-yoku, which I might've just like totally messed that up, but, um, <laughs> well, well I'll, I'll look it up afterwards. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's very cool. So either forest bathing or actual bathing in the ocean (laughs) has wonderful effects, um, for physical and mental health. So I think that's a great one. And we're seeing, we're seeing the impacts of that right now as people are, um, I was going to say getting creative with how they spend their time because you can't go to like restaurants and bars and travel as much, but, um, 
you know, I, I like that aspect of this. It's like, it's nice to see people getting in touch with nature if, if they were feeling a little bit of a disconnect before. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what makes people at, at the core care about nature, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was bummed because I was, I was trying to buy a new kayak like over the summer and they were all sold out like everywhere <laughs> that I went because people bought all the kayaks because they were like trying to go out to the lakes and the ocean and get outside and do stuff like that and connect with the ocean. Right. And so I think, I think that's an interesting point to topic to even bring up at the, at the dinner table is like, how have, you know, do you feel any better during this pandemic? Like, have you been able to spend more time outside and like really appreciate this stuff? And then you, and then you can slip in the, Hey, you know, these awesome natural places won't be around forever if we keep on polluting them and uh, overfishing and, you know, all this. Right. Um, and destroying the habitat. And so that's, that's where I think it's like an entrance to, um, bring up some of the conservation topics that, that you really, you know, want to educate them about. Yeah. Or even just asking people how, how have they been spending time outside or tell me a story about, um, a moment when you were out hiking or kayaking or surfing, you know, whatever, just, I think there's a lot of power in storytelling too. Yeah, exactly. Like even I I'd say, uh, every time, every year in the, the winter up here in New England, um, I start, if, if there's no waves, I end up going down to the beach and I end up walking the beach looking for snowy owls. Um, these, these owls that come down, it's a, they're an Arctic species that flies down. The, the younger ones fly down south in the winter and we see them on our coast up here. Have you ever seen one? I haven't seen one in real life, but that's like a lifeless bird. I would be just overjoyed. If I saw oh, yeah. one, because they're it, so stunningly beautiful. It's unreal when you see one of these things in person. And like that in itself, the, the other day I was, I was out walking the beach and we actually ended up seeing one. We came across one that was, uh, it was just perched up on this telephone wire basically. And there were, there was a, a big crowd. People were staying, they were respecting the space of it. Right. Um, if anyone got too close, people in the crowd would, you know, just remind them to step back. Um, and explain like for, for the safety of the animal. But it was cool hearing the conversations of people because so, you, you just get passersby coming by being like, what, what are you all looking at? Um, and and these people, this was the, their first time ever seeing this animal. And they were like stoked beyond belief. Like, yeah. I mean, I was stoked beyond belief. But like, uh, you know, imagine just stumbling upon this. And then like a, a lot of them were families with their kids, stuff like that. And, you know, like that's, that's a way like this kid, if you know, you, you're with a family and kids and they see a snowy owl perched up there and they're like, Oh my God, that's, that's, it just sparks curiososity. It sparks interest. Right. Yeah. It's, just, it's yeah. a majestic moment. And it's a memory that you all will have together. Um, and a great teaching moment to talk about, you know, what snowy owls are, their range, why they're important. Yeah. Um, you know, and why, why birds are cool. <laughs> birds are so cool. And I think, uh, I, I think that's, that's like my point, I guess is, well, birding is super cool, by the way. And, <laughs> and I, I think, I think it's cool, it, especially during the beginning of quarantine or earlier, like basically a year ago or, you know, close to a year ago now, mm-hmm. I got super into birding in the spring. Like that was, that was all that I was doing was going, was like paying attention to my birds. And it's funny, like in, in pop culture, I think I saw some some funny memes out there that like were on really popular accounts that were like, you know, 
people were kind of saying like I put up a bird feeder in my backyard and like this is this is my entertainment now for the next like three months is just <laughs> oh it's the best out. thing ever and you know you know and I'm sure I've some of my listeners also know this because I think I've talked about it but I I was one of those people that adopted adopted a dog over um, quarantine and she yeah. is bird obsessed but not really in a way where she wants to attack them she just likes to watch them. Um, which is great because I'm the same way. So we'll be on a walk and she'll sit down and just um, take in the scenery and just be like (laughs) looking up at the trees, watching the birds. And she's like the best fit for me for so many reasons, but especially because of that, where I'm like my dog and I bird watch together. (laughs) Yeah. What a a good dog. Yeah. She's the best. She is the best (laughs) that Jolene. Um, Yeah. But I think that that was my point is I think, before I went down the rabbit hole, why birding is so cool. But uh, the point I was trying to make is that more people, just the fact that more people are spending time outside during this pandemic, it's it's like peaked the interest of people in environmental issues. And it's like right now is the time to talk to people about this stuff, especially your family members during Christmas, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Just ask them what's the coolest thing that you saw while you know walking around like the the community like during quarantine what 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 did you see right yeah and it's almost like you know we're getting people are getting back in touch with their like primal selves they're yeah like, refinding how they feel when they're they're outside and connected to nature yeah no a hundred percent yeah, uh, 100%. yeah. But, um, i think that that was definitely that's a hundred percent a topic that I'm going to bring up at the dinner table and you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that my dad can toss at that and be like, Oh no, like that's not true. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Maybe I'll just play this podcast at the dinner table and <laughs> and sit, go in the other room with a glass of wine and just be like, just yeah. listen to this. <laughs> well, so, so now, now I have another question. I want to, I want to go down this, this road okay. just briefly, but I know that you, you mentioned that your family dynamic is similar to mine where yes. Uh, my, my family, my, my parents are definitely conservative. My sister is very, uh, left-leaning. Uh, she like definitely, and then my brother kind of floats somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I, my, my big thing is, uh, environmental issues. Like I, that's, that's really what I I focus on, on what I know the most about. And so that's kind of what I bring to the table. But, um, but what I find and, and, you, Jenna, you have a similar dynamic, correct? Correct. Yes. Uh, conservative parents. Uh, my brother is also conservative. He's he's more middle ground. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when I think back to my political viewpoints. Um, my, the first thing I ever was registered as was a Republican. And then I was an independent for a really long time. And then um, I wanted to vote in the 2016 primaries, and in order to do so in Massachusetts, at least, you have to register for a party. So yeah. I registered as a Democrat, um, yep. and I uh, I very much still see myself as an independent, though, but remain with that party affiliation so that I can vote in primaries. Um, I think that that um, everyone needs to move a little bit closer toward the center. <laughs> we do yeah, better. Yeah. We do better when we're we're a little more centered. Yeah, That's you, my personal opinion, I guess. But. I, I, I agree. I'm right there with you, too. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by 
LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. I had a similar, similar story, but like that's, that's kind of where I'm going with this is like, I, I'm curious how you address the ideas of, of just speaking about biz, business and environmental issues, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you talk to my dad, he yeah. cares very much, very, very much about the future of the United States, right? And mm-hmm. mo- mostly he's, for, for context, he uh, works, right now he, he's a day, he was a day trader um, with the stock market. He worked on Wall Street for a while when we were younger. Um, and now he manages, uh, apartment buildings and basically, you know, he's, he's got a very, very, he's a savvy business person, right? Like he, he pays attention to the stock market. He's very good with economics. He's very well versed in this stuff. And I, I have the most interesting conversations with him about environmental policy because he, he comes at it. He, he really plays a very good devil's advocate, mm-hmm. um, for anything that I'm talking about, whether it's sustainable energy, um, overfishing, like whatever it is, he plays he plays a very good devil, devil's advocate and gets me thinking how just like what I'm going to encounter, like what what I'm going to have to say to counter some of these points, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was curious, like what are what are some ideas that you would bring up to someone who's conservative who thinks you know very like their their concern is is the economy right yeah i um i think the first thing is that the thought that the economy and the econ- the economy and the environment are separate and are pitted against each other is antiquated and needs to go away um i think that they're uh directly tied to each other um and we are in a system now that is operating within a linear economy and we need to shift it to a circular one. So um, not necessarily saying that the way that we exist now with capitalism needs to stop, but we need to be smarter about how we're using our resources if we imagine ourselves continuing to use them into the future. Because the fact of the matter is that it's finite. Um, 
those resources aren't going to be around forever. So if we're, I mean, if you're talking to someone that really just values immediate short-term gains over longevity, then, you know, I think that there's a range of people that you're going to be able to have these conversations with or not. Um, But, you know, hopefully you can reach a certain amount of people that, you know, maybe they are, their number one value is the economy. Um, It's not separate from the environment. It's directly related to it. And if you're looking at right now, the clean job sector is, is, I think, at least last when I looked, it's the fastest growing job sector in the country right now. Um, So if you value jobs, then, you know, investing in clean energy is, I mean, that's, it's just the way that it's going. Even you start to see like the big fossil fuel companies recognize that. And they're starting to transition some of their operations to be uh, more focused on uh, clean energy, green infrastructure, and all that. So I just think that that's the future. Um, And then you can even flip it on the other side when you start thinking about like the ecosystem services that the the environment provides you. I mean, it's a tool. It protects your investments. So if you have a coastline that has wetlands um, that are going to protect your big hotel or resort or any, whatever you have, your business, your local business, your cafe that's on the beach. If you invest in great infrastructure to help protect you when a big storm comes in or help protect you against sea level rise or fires or hurricanes or tornadoes or what have you, you're doing yourself a favor in terms of using nature and nature as a solution to protect your investments. Um, Yeah. I sort of just went on to a tangent there, and there's a lot that you can touch on in terms of how the environment and the economy, uh, you know, interact with each other and impact each other. But I think, you know, to sum up that whole conversation and that thought is that they're they're all, they're tied directly to each other, and I think um, we're not doing ourselves any favors by by uh, trying to cling on to that old antiquated view of of yeah. you can only have one or the other. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And usually, usually the the one phrase that I usually bring up, um, and I was talking with my dad about this the other day, uh, is just internalizing the externalities of doing business, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think I think anyone anyone who understands business, I think, can really under, wrap their heads around that that sentence. Um, mm-hmm. For those for those who don't understand what an externality is, the ex, an externality of doing business is any byproduct of doing business that it has some kind of a negative outcome, right? So for example, um, if I have a paper mill and my paper mill pollutes uh, the local river that it runs into, right? Which pollutes, um, you know, it just runs downstream. That is an externality of my business. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be happening if my business wasn't there, right? Mm-hmm. So who is responsible for that? It should be the business like any, it, you know, when I speak with my dad or anyone, it's really, you know, who, who is responsible for polluting, right? It, it, it is the business who is polluting, correct? Like that's, that's fairly, you know, a universal, people can agree on that, right? Yeah, um, definitely. And yeah, for the, you know, for the most part, I mean, I, I don't know what you'd argue otherwise, but um, when I talk about climate with, with my, with my dad, that's something that I bring up too is, you know, our changing climate, um, carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, methane, all this, the, these are externalities of 
business. And should should the the businesses should be held accountable to this to some extent, right? And that's that's what we do see with um like the the carbon credits and and all that. But um I think that's a way to kind of bring it to their level of of talking about the economy, talking about business. Um just being like this is something that is slipping through the cracks right now. Like people should be paying for this. That their businesses won't wouldn't be as profitable if everything was accounted for like if they're if they actually had to pay you know what they what they should be paying for um, sure yes yeah, yeah. you know I the think, biggest one that comes to mind is pl- the plastic industry yeah exactly exactly is there and i think when you what brought that up i mean i was kind of thinking about that the whole the whole time you were talking is 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 uh but mainly when you were like oh i don't know who, on the on the flip side of that like like who would think that somebody else needs to clean up this mess? And you're seeing, I mean, I feel like you're just seeing that right now with like the, like plastic producers are holding consumers responsible for cleaning yeah. up the mess. And it's like, you're trying to bail out this, like this, like sinking ship while yeah. you're not plugging the hole. So it's like, you're not going to fix the problem until the producers are held responsible for either stopping it or cleaning it up. Oh, for sure. And it's, it's called, um, uh, extended producer responsibility when you're yeah. talking about stuff like that with plastics. And, uh, it, it's basically the idea that produce, if you produce a good, you are responsible for that goods and fate, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you're, if your good is a chocolate bar mate and you, you wrap it in plastic and package it in plastic to sell, you are responsible. You're the one responsible for that plastic and where it ends up. And, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's kind of what that uh, idea really states. And um, like the, the example of where it's been successful is in like with uh, batteries. Um, So basically battery producers, you you know, now there's all these places where you can, um, what is it? uh, Recycle your batteries. Mm -hmm. Or drop them. Yeah. Yeah. There's like drop off centers for batteries. Um, and that that is paid for by the producers um, because of these extended producer responsibility laws. And I think, yeah, when you're talking about plastics, I, I definitely think that's that's an that I would love to hear what people on any end of like on the other end of the spectrum think about those laws. Like, should should these you know people who make uh, the, these companies that make candy wrappers, right? Like, or uh, candies, should they be responsible for where they're for paying for the cleanup of their wrappers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that that would shift the you know all these businesses to lean towards uh, compostable wrappers or like there's there's other options out there nowadays. They're just a little bit more expensive, but something like that would shift the you know just the way things are done essentially. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I kind of think of it as like not even the people that are like wrapping their candy in plastic. It's more like the person that's creating the plastic wrapping. Like the people that are like refined, like these like refineries and the ones that are like actually making all of this plastic and just spewing it out into the world and um, have very little uh, oversight to my knowledge right now to um, in terms of cleaning it up and look at where we are. I think that that needs to happen. I know there's a really big movement um, building right now to, to make, that happen and hold hold plastic producers accountable. But yeah, I think 
I'd be interested in hearing um, listeners and other people's perspectives on that as well. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And even I'm trying to think there was, there was one other, Oh, this is, this is something else that I'm very interested in too, uh, is I, I come from, a, a you know, a close background with fisheries, right. Mm-hmm. And something that I find so interesting is seafood. Right. And if you're, if you're unfamiliar with this, uh, I have a friend who, who worked in, um, I mean, I worked as an observer on commercial boats and I have a, I have a buddy who worked with me as an observer on commercial fishing boats and then ended up working in the, in the seafood packing industry. And what he was telling me is that, and, and I've heard this, uh, from a couple, a couple different sources, but the seafood that we catch, let's say in Rhode Island, right. Mm-hmm. It is often shipped overseas to be packaged and then shipped back to be sold. Hmm. So, so there's, there's like this gap um, that it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't seem to make sense, but I guess the, the, the financing and the structure of um, the seafood market just leans for that. But I, I'd be interested to, to hear if anyone has like a solution to that, right? Like during, during the pandemic, especially when, um, and this is early on, I heard, uh, a lot of commercial fishermen were having trouble selling their their fish, and they actually started selling them more from the, their docks, um, yeah. like encouraging people to come by their docks and and buy direct from the fishermen. I'm curious if that's something that could be sustainable in the long run. Like, it, is is it possible to shift away from you know the past doings of business where we're? I mean, it's still a current phenomenon, I guess. But um, can we shift away from you know, having to, to export our seafood products overseas and then ship them back versus just selling them right from the dock and from, you know, the, supporting these local fishers directly. Um, yeah. That's something I'd be interested I in. I think that that would be a great episode for you or one of us to, to, to focus yeah, in yeah, on. Yeah. And I think you could look at it from a couple of different angles of, um, you know, buying local. I'm, I've been a big supporter of that for a long time. And especially right now, you know, everyone please go out and support local businesses. Um, cause it's kind of a terrifying thought to think about what happens when they all shut down, um, and who's Seriously. left. Um, but then, um, you know, I am no fisheries expert, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in learning more about this, but you know, my understanding is we import a lot of our seafood, even though U S fisheries are fairly sustainable, yeah, exactly. Um, fishery even, but you know, that is the res- direct result of effective conservation policy too, um, yeah. and effective fishing practices. So I think I'm where I, my curiosity lies is where is that disconnect between, um, us importing a lot of our seafood as opposed to, uh, you know, sourcing a lot of it more locally. And I think that that's a question I've heard from a lot of people. So, um, I think we're getting some ideas for some some issues that we should cover in 2021. Oh yeah, and I mean this is this is also a perfect discussion for the dinner table around Christmas. Is talk about what you're eating, where you got it from, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, where where did you know where did Ma get um, you know the turkey from this year? Like, where you know, the seafood, especially with Italian family families, the seven fishes, right? Yeah, like. It was your sea was your seafood sustainable talk. <laughs> Where'd they come the, from? Yeah. Dinner. Yeah. Like that's that's an awesome conversation starter to talk about con- um conservation topics. Is like where did our food come from? Yeah. Um, and you know, I think um with the 
conversation we were having about seafood and um, before that when we were talking about the economy and I'll even tie in, you know, if you're talking to people that care about uh, the economy and national security, um, something that I find really fascinating and something that I, I don't really know if a lot of people are aware of this um, is just how much U.S. territory is underwater. Um, you know, I like yeah. to usually frame that as just a question, like, you know, like how much of the United States do you, do you think is underwater? Like how much of our land and our territory is underwater? And, um, I, I feel like you usually get like, you know, five, 10%, but it's over half of our, our territory is under the ocean, Yeah, which, which is wild to think about. But I think that that's an important point to make when you, are talking to folks that really care about the economy, national security, um, and then even if they're they care if they're more you know on the side, it's maybe not a side. That's not a good way to, to frame that, but it's like you know if you have people that really care about wildlife and conservation, that's something that like I think is interesting um, to everyone. Is yeah. that it's like this like unknown part of America is that most of our country is actually underwater because of our ex exclusive economic zone, um, yeah, which runs from the shore out to 200 miles offshore. So, um, you know, all of that to really just say that one, it's pretty crazy that we have so much territory underwater. And then two, if you find yourself like talking to somebody that seems to really care about, um, the economy and national security and all of that, it's, it is so critical for us to be taking care of our oceans and aware of what's out there and protecting it. Um, not only to protect the wildlife and the health of our planet, but also to safeguard our borders yeah. and our, our safety and um, our economy. Big time, big time. And just, I, I have a thought to kind of plan off that. Did, did you know, and this is something that I compare to like the space race back when was, when was the space race? The seventies, something like, the like that. Sixties and seventies. I don't know. That's like, like 70s, right? we're a bunch of millennials but, over here. A bunch of boomers are screaming at their podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> or people are just smarter but, about history than I am. <laughs> but, but what, what I, what I've heard in the news is that, the modern day space race is now occurring in the Arctic uh, over shipping lanes and, and access to these new high seas territory areas that are essentially melting. The, the sea ice in the Arctic is melting. There's shipping lanes that are opening up. And between a lot of the world's superpowers, uh, a lot, we're all kind of battling over this new territory in the Arctic. Can we fish it? Can we ship you know, it changed our shipping lanes to ship more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, it's that from what I've heard is because the the sea ice is melting, um, the, that area is becoming the next space, like the modern day space race between these big superpowers, US, China, Russia. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure who, who else has really a stake up. Uh, Canada, I would assume. Um, but yeah. that, have you heard about that? I have heard about that. And um, then that got me thinking about sea mining too. That's like the yeah. new 
frontier that really scares uh, the bejesus out of me um, to avoid swearing on a podcast that might be listened to by family. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that those things are pretty scary to me if they're done in a rushed way without, um, you know, it's like, how can you even make decisions on, on things like that when you're, you know, you're, even if you're working off the best available science and data, especially when it comes to mining. Um, yeah, very high risk. We don't know that much about. Yeah, it's like, you, even if you use the best information you have, it's still incomplete because we know so little about these areas. And it's also on like, yeah, it's anything in the ocean is undeniably more difficult to accomplish than it is on land. Mm-hmm. And the ocean is unpredictable. Like uh, it, it doesn't, it, it's much. It's a much more dangerous task mining, um, you know, for whatever it is da- down the deep sea, and and all those, all those ecosystems in the deep sea are very slow growing ecosystems. They're very vulnerable, and that's that's what we saw with the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument, right? Yeah. Is that that's all it, up here where we live? That's that's a local, you know, it, it, people can understand it. Um, that's where. I don't know. People can understand because it it's 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 where we live, right? And um, th- it's it's so close to us, yet we understand so little about it. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why it was protected. I mean, they're um, still discovering things in the canyons and seamounts that have never been discovered before. And I mean, there there are corals that live down there that are thousands of years old. And if you topple those over, that you know, those aren't coming back. No, um, and no. they're so crucial to the ecosystem. So. I think that just scares me of us trying to getting back to like that, like short term gain and profit for um, losing sight of like the long term. Yeah. 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 Where it's like we are trying to rush to mine the ocean for minerals, but we don't even know what's down there and how it affects us, our our health, the climate, um, you know, the entire planet that we live on and call home. Exactly. Celebrate our holidays on. Yeah. And, and so I, I think, I think some of the big takeaways are that really like conservative folk can a hundred percent care about ocean conservation issues and it's, they, and they should, right? Like if this is every time that I have a conversation with my dad about this stuff, what we end up coming to is that he want he would rather obviously see, you know, a thriving natural world, right? He just, as he likes to say, uh, he thinks in the school of the hard knocks or, um, you know, like kind of putting on your street cap in a way, like thinking, okay, this is what we would like to happen, but how can we really make it happen? Yeah. And, you know, he, he, he likes to come with more of that perspective of like, I agree. I, I, I would like to see this happen, but you know, is it possible? And I think, you know, that's, that's something that I personally take with me you know, in my work after having these conversations with him. I'm thinking about these things every day that I'm working, right? Like if if I'm out responding to a seal and someone comes up and they're, you know, just uh, hostile towards seals because they fish, like ha- talking to them from that perspective um, and, and thinking like, what would my dad say kind of thing? Um, oh, so that And, you know, I think that um, just – you know, it's like, I feel like there's, there are, now we have found ourselves in a place where there are like tiers of Republicans, tiers of Democrats, where like, it's not, there's so many different meanings behind like what that, 
those parties stand for now where, um, you know, I just, I feel like I just mainly wanted to acknowledge that like, like a lot of Republicans and conservatives care deeply about conservation in the planet. And I think I'm just, I'm thinking about it from a perspective of thinking of my family members that are, um, much more conservative than I am. And maybe we like butt heads on certain other political issues, but they are also avid outdoors men and women and spend a lot of time hunting and fishing. And the hunting and fishing community, although not all fully made up of Republicans, um, <laughs> is like the largest contributor to con- like funding conservation initiatives yeah. in the United States. So I think that it's another like issue of reframing um, and moving away from looking at people as their like labels um, and trying to get at like what they care about and, and what they understand areas to educate um, areas that we can collaborate on and places that we can make progress. Bingo. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's, that's, a, great, that's a great way to go out with, yeah. you know, um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, and, and I don't know if you know this, but hunting and fishing, I saw an article today, I think, uh, it, the sales of licenses have gone, you know, way up since COVID happened. Um, people yeah, have more I a fishing license this year, just cause there you go. <laughs> So you're, you're part, you're part of it. We're yeah. getting out, we're getting outside. Yeah. I um, mean, and that's a good tip for people that like, even if you, I did use it by the way, which is good, but like, uh, you know, even if you didn't, don't use it, one of the best ways to contribute to conservation is just buying a hunting and fishing license. Yeah, it's true. And it, a hundred percent like that's, and, and then you're also connected to that community because you know, you get messages from your local wildlife officers, all this stuff about, you know, new regulations, what's going on. So you're, you're, you're constantly in the know, but, um, yeah, I I think that's such a good point. And, um, so yeah, I'd say get outside, learn, learn a little bit, learn something new from your family, your family this Christmas. Um, you know, it's all love. It's all good vibes. Um, just, I I'd say, yeah, open your ears, listen twice as much as you speak. And, um, and like Jenna, you were saying earlier, uh, speaking, uh, what, what was the term you used? Uh, like active listening or, you know, listening to understand. Yes. Yes. Listen, listen to understand this Christmas and, uh, and just be open. Right. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, if you have an interesting conversation with your friends or family, um, we would love to hear about it. Um, so you, you know, you can find us on social media, um, a bunch of different ways. So you can find the, the network where the American Shoreline Podcast Network um, on uh, Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram, we're Coastal News 365. Um, and then you can find me personally just by searching my name on Instagram and Twitter and, and same with Brian. So um, we definitely would love to hear how your conversations go or if you have any interesting um points or strategies that you use to navigate um, difficult conversations because we certainly we try to be uh, the best versions of ourselves but we have a lot to learn too and you can teach us a lot so um, definitely reach out to us be safe out there wear your masks keep a good distance you know just try to be healthy and and spread, uh, spread holiday cheer yes red holiday cheer 
Um, we look forward to sharing this episode with you and coming back in 2021 with a whole bunch of great content and guests and new podcasts to share with you all. Yeah, definitely. It was awesome connecting again, Jenna. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.